Ron and Anian. There's a hierarchy in auto repair in terms of parts. You know, there's the holy grail, the, the manufacturer. Then there's the automotive aftermarket with a name brand part. And then there's, you know, that white box part that comes from somewhere other than, well, comes from somewhere. We're just not sure where. The Car Doctor. They're basing it on it's Walmart's fault because the engine had one quart of oil in it. Still in it, yes. Well, but that doesn't make any sense. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian. The Car Doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls. At 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Hey, it's time to start your engines alone. Welcome, Ronnie Amy and the Car Doctor here at 855-560-9900. Here to take your calls and answer your questions. 855-855. You know, I was off to a good start there, and then I had a misfire on number two. 855-560-9900. The Car Doctor's 24-7 phone number. Um, it's there working even when I'm not able to. Uh, because I uh, open my mouth and the wrong thing comes out. But um, 855-560-9900 is 24-7. Call, leave a message if we're not here. We are live on the network Saturday afternoons, 2 to 4 p.m. East Coast time. And uh, Tom Ray, executive cook and chief bottle washer, will put you in the queue for the next live broadcast. Busy week at the shop. Um, crazy week at the shop. I, uh, you know, goofy things that made no sense. We, I, I understand we're a Mercury retrograde or there's a full moon or a super moon coming. Or, and, you know, I should have known um, because some of the things that I, well, here, this story. So we had a 2012 Chevy Tahoe that came in and it needed a front axle. You know, it's a four-wheel drive. The front differential was bad, It was, which is getting to be a common thing on the GMs. They wear out the aluminum case. They wipe out the bearings. And we don't see, you know, it's not as common as a brake failure, but we'll do a few a year. It's been a while since I did the last one. It, um, it hasn't come up. Oh, it's probably been seven, eight months. And you're no longer able to purchase the entire assembly from GM. It's it's now going to be purchased in pieces. And the problem is it gets to be very, very expensive. It's, you know, you have to take it apart. And it's a time thing, too. If you, you know, take the housing out, split it apart, what do you need? You need this, 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 this. Oh, you don't need that. You don't need that. Then you've got to order parts. And it ties up a lift for two to three days it becomes a it becomes a problem so best bet for the shop best bet for the customer is you know can we get something remanned over the counter from a reliable source take one out put one in we're done i have two rebuilders th that i use for this example um uh, when i run into this situation and i turn to them and sure enough they are now rebuilding remanning this front axle and it was strange. It didn't make sense to me. The one rebuilder was doing it cheaper. They were they were about four hundred dollars cheaper than the other one. But when you look at an axle, there's there's a center section with with spider gears, side gears, um, you know, ca or carrier gears, bearings, ring and pinion, and so forth. And then you need two axles or stub axles, we'll call them. And then there's an aluminum extension housing and then a pinion yoke. And the pinion yoke is probably the most critical component to have there because it it's you, you need you have to use the pinion with the nut on it to set crush and preload on the pinion bearings. Otherwise you run into an issue of the rear doesn't work. 
So the one rebuilder, offering it for a couple hundred dollars less, four hundred dollars less, five hundred dollars less, is selling just a carrier aluminum housing, no pinion yoke, and no stub axles. I could deal with the no stub axles, but I can't deal with the no pinion because when something goes wrong, as it inevitably does, who handles warranty? Well, let's see. I, you know, that who installed the pinion? Well, Ron did. Well, Ron was responsible for setting the load on the bearings. If the rear had a problem, then it must have been Ron's fault because he was the last guy to touch the critical dimension. That's not going to work. Went out and purchased from Jasper. All right, we talk about Jasper engine and transmission from time to time on this show. And Jasper, uh, for a few dollars more, gave a complete housing. Axles, axles, pinion. And they did a very nice job. Uh, shipped in a container. Uh, they even provided the lube. Hey, this is the lube we want you to use. Three-year, 100,000-mile warranty. And it was very refreshing, and, and this is the point I want to make, and they're taking pride in what they're doing. They, they stamped the axle, and you have to look at it twice because it's a neat decal. I, I want to see if I can get a few and put them around the shop, but it's um, instead of saying made in USA, it says remade in USA, you know, um, which is kind of neat, right? Um, and it worked. Old one out, new one in, bolted it up. Filled it with fluid, hooked up hooked up everything down the road. And it was an afternoon swap. And, you know, that's what you're looking for. And I guess the point of the story becomes, you know, if you're not getting what you want, keep looking. Don't look at price. Look at what you're getting. Had we tried to save the $400, I think it would have been a mistake because in the event that there's an issue, I can only imagine the argument with he who touched it last. And... It really kind of crawls back to your as as a as as doing it as a professional, but even as a weekend warrior, you want to be able to sit there and say, "Look, I purchased X, I put in X, X went bad. Now I'm going to warranty X. Not I purchased X. Well, but I had to add Y to it and I had to do a little bit of Z. And you know, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. You want to have a clear path to warranty, and you want to have a clear path to to, you know, when it goes bad, what are you going to do with it? So, you know, just something to be aware of. And it was it was that kind of a week in the shop. We bolted it, and it's quiet. It's down the road, and, you know, we kind of move on to the next thing. So um, just, just tales from the shop. That was a real one. Let's get over to the phones because I see they're lit up already. Let's go over to Frank in New Mexico, 86 Olds Cutlass, and uh, some problems running rich. Frank, we talked about this car a couple of weeks ago, did we not? Yes, sir. And I went in for the emissions test yesterday after doing all the uh – well, I replaced a bunch of parts, and it re- running real rich, uh, specifically how rich, like the allowances, I guess it's 200 parts per million, and I'm at 249 okay. high speed. They couldn't do the low speed because of the initial failure. Anyway, the technicians recommended checking the map sensor or the pressure regulator valve. Does that sound reasonable to you? Well, map or the uh, mass uh, sensor? Uh, a map, a map sensor could, but let's let's go back to basics. This is a car. Okay. This is a carbureted olds, right? This has yes, sir. This has a feedback carburetor on it. 
Did you yeah. did you find the uh, purge canister valve that I spoke about coming off the uh, front of the carburetor, the round black? Yeah, small I, I, I hockey changed pump? it out. AC Dilco. Right. Did you I changed have... that out. I put a new smog pump on it, uh, thermostatic vacuum switch. Okay, but but let me ask let me ask you this, Frank. Have you you know have you seen anything here that you know have you done any testing or are we just swapping parts so far? Well, I haven't. Uh, the parts I mentioned are already already been put in, and okay. then I went for the emissions test yesterday, and it okay. failed. Did you happen to look at the oil? The oil is clean. I had just changed it. All right. It's not over full, is it? Oh, no. Okay. Uh, and the reason I ask that is on an older car. See, and these are the things you have to think about. On an older car, do we have, we could have a porous fuel pump, and I've seen this, where you'll have a porous fuel pump, and it will put, it'll, it'll you know, put fuel into the oil at a very small scale, and it'll cause that engine to run rich. And one of the things I would like to see is we're going to diagnose this. Let's put this on a five gas and start looking at emissions. Let's let's pop the PCV valve out of the valve cover and, and stop feeding it crankcase fumes. Does that cause a change in the way the vehicle operates? Okay, so I've got to go somewhere with the five gas right. analyzer. So that's one. And then two... This particular car, and I realize it's, let's see, 86, 96, 2006. 33 years old. 33 <laughs> years old. Um, uh, you know, Tom's got socks older. Tom's got socks newer than this car. Not much, but, but some. Um, you know, assuming the carburetor is still set up as a mixture control solenoid uh, carburetor, it's, it hasn't been modified, you know, there, there, was a, there was an adjustment for dwell where we would control the positioning of the mixture control solenoid for how far in or out, and also the frequency of how often it would be on or off for metering rods for mixture control. Where's that? Base fuel adjustment on these was very critical back in the day. How many miles are on this car? 104,000. Right. So, you know, if you look at the bottom of the carb, do you recall are the mixture are the, are the mixture plugs uncovered on this particular car? Yes, they're still there. The mixture plugs are still there. Yes. So you know the hardened steel plug is still there. So uh, you know the possibility of carb adjustment may correct this car also. There is a green. It's this really obnoxious fluorescent green connector somewhere in the proximity of the air cleaner. It'll, it might be tucked under the air cleaner. Uh, it might be close to the base of the carb coming out of the wiring harness. If I remember right, it was this obnoxious green connector with, I, I can see it in my eye, I believe it was a light blue colored wire, but the green connector will be the giveaway. And that was the dwell lead for you would hook up in the, you know, I guess we had just transitioned from doing points, and GM said, well, everybody's got a, a, a dwell meter for doing points. We'll do a dwell meter for doing carburetor adjustment. And there are some specs and procedures for doing carburetor adjustments to this. I would go through basic carb adjustments. Um, you know, Frank, if, if the float level is too high, all right, and there was adjustments, there was a way to go in through that. I probably still have those tools, too. I think I kind of know where they are. But if the, if the float level was too high in the carburetor and it, it dripped over a little bit, it'll make that car run rich. So there's a bunch of things to look at carburetor-wise before we start yeah. just you know, changing sensors, uh, you know, I would, I, and I mean, there's ways to test the map sensor. It's a three-wire sensor. It's going to have a five-volt feed, a ground. Is the ground any good? Is, is you know, is signal return where it's supposed to be at idle? 
but I've got to think, you know, we always dealt with things in terms of authority or, or level of authority, if I can explain it that way. Some things had more of an effect on the way the vehicle ran than others. If this was a fuel-injected engine, yeah, I'd be thinking map sensor, mass airflow sensor, critical stuff. You know, a, a map sensor or mass airflow sensor on a fuel-injected vehicle off by 1% will drive emissions nuts. On a carbureted car, carbureted cars and, and, and feedback fuel control was kind of like doing brain surgery with a hammer and a chisel. It was crude and it worked, but it really wasn't very pretty. Uh, you know, I would tell you, look at carb adjustments, pop the PCV out. Does that change emissions? Could we have the possibility of a contaminated crankcase? Start eliminating some of the obvious things that you can test without having to find specific tools and, and, and so forth. And then call me back and we can talk about it further. All right, sir? Do that and let me know what happens. I'm Ron Anini in the car doctor, 855-560-9900. We're back right after this. It's the he drives that way, but when it comes to fixing cars, Ron has car advice done right. 855-560-9900. Here's Ron. Hey, let's get over to Pete in uh, Massachusetts, I think that is, with the 06 PT Cruiser. Yeah, Pete, welcome back, sir. What's going hey, Ron, on now? How are you? Good, sir. What's cooking? Yeah, I uh, called you uh, two or three weeks ago about 2006 PT Cruiser yeah. that uh, is stuck in limp mode. Right. Yeah, well, and you suggested I go get clutch volume indexes read off. Right, we thought maybe this was having a trans issue. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, went to a shop that has ProDemand, and I've got some numbers for you. Okay. From PSCVI to normal to low rev. Normal is 35 to 83, and I've got a 57. Okay. And then the 2.4 is a 46, and then we have a range between 20 and 77. Right. And the OD is 108, and we have anywhere between 48 and 150. And then the normal UD values anywhere is between 24 and 70, and I have 41. So okay. I got some nice solid numbers. So you got some nice solid numbers, but yet the trans won't shift out of second gear, right? It's still stuck in second gear. That's correct. Uh, I also tried running an external ground to the transmission, thinking okay. it could have lost its ground and got confused. Okay. I've now, heard of that happening. Now, were there fault codes with this, Pete? I don't remember. No, there weren't. I'm okay. just getting the same old ones I had before, so yeah, okay. no real fault codes. That's interesting. So yeah. my my next step would be I'd want to I'd want to look at this with a scan tool, and yep. I'd I'd want to look and see you know where does or what does things like, and you know everybody calls them a different thing. To some it's it's a turbine sensor, to some it's an input sensor, to some it's an output sensor, and so on. There's an input sensor, there's an output sensor on that trans. All right, okay. the, the input sensor better match engine RPM or be close to it. So if the engine RPM is 800, we should see 800 on the input shaft. All right? Yep. Um, you know, if we don't, then we probably have a bad converter or something is causing the converter to slip, or why are we losing input speed? It should be a direct lock. It should be a pretty close correlation. Output speed okay. is going to depend upon the gear ratio and depending upon what gear we're in. But I would start to look at by the numbers. All right? You know, just because it's in limp, doesn't mean automatically it's a bad trans, and that's too easy to say. What I no, would, I'm thinking what, it could be the controller at the front of it. Right, exactly. So I'm almost t toying with the idea of getting one out of a out of a wreck for twenty bucks and changing it out. Well, we could do that, but let's have a little fun with it. If we have if we have a scan tool ability, let's try and learn something. You know, one of the things we always say is, if you're not sure what's wrong with it, which in a lot of cases you're not, show yourself yeah. what's right, prove what's right. Yep. And then you'll figure out what's wrong, and you'll learn something along the way. 
So I would start to look at input-output speed. I would compare gear ratio. I would divide. You're going to divide. Um, you're going to divide output by input, and you'll get the gear ratio. I might be backwards on that. I have to think about that. Um, but you get the idea. There's a way to do the math yeah. and, and, and figure out the ratio of what you want to be um, in your final drive. And verify the gears. If if mechanically we're there then I've got to start to think some other ex external control. And, yeah, if what I'm trying to do is prove the inside of the trans is good, so maybe I do have a shift pack problem, a control pack problem, yeah. the piece on the front. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, based on these numbers and everything else, and I know this transmission has been a part in its life before, so... Right. Is that leaking? That's that side bearing to 50,000 miles. Is, is that control pack leaking? No, it's not. Nice and dry. Everything's clean and dry. Nothing obvious. Boy, that is broken. That's really unusual. Usually they're... <laughs> usually, usually you'll see it dripping. Yeah, usually you'll see them leaking. Um, so All that's... Right. Uh, you know, that's something to be aware of, too. Let me ask you this. Have you tried, just for giggles, disconnecting the battery for 10 minutes? No. I mean, simple, easy enough. Yeah. Why don't Make we just forget. Yeah, why don't, we, why, don't we disconnect, why don't we disconnect both battery terminals? for 10 minutes and uh, get yourself, you know, you should try and make yourself a 10 ohm, 1 watt resistor uh, jumper wire and jumper that between the two battery cables and bleed everything down. Hook it up and see how long, if ever, does it take to go back to that default where it's stuck in second you gear. You might get a hold of a 10 ohm resistor. I think I right. may have one, yeah, actually. They, they used to be Radio Shack, but that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I know. Right. But if you they can, were handy for all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but if, it, if, it's, if it's stuck in limp mode... Now, if it's in limp mode, Pete, the you should have a check engine light on, right? Yeah, well, I've got that with a charcoal canister issue as well, so... Okay. You did scan for but, codes uh, and well, you... Well, when, when you hook in my regular little, my little Autel scanner, it, it doesn't throw anything other than the, the two oddballs concerning the emissions. Okay, but are you looking at OBD2 side or are you looking at vehicle-specific? Uh, just OBD2 to the best ah. of my knowledge. Yeah, just when you plug it under dash with okay. my little... So Red you, code reader. So you're going to plug in the same place, but you want to get yep. you, you want to get you want to get to a shop where they can do vehicle specific and just do an all module scan, scan everything. Let's see. Okay, so Let's, I should have I should have asked for more when I when I had the the CVIs done. Correct, correct. So um, do all that. Right, so go back to them. Uh, go back to, to them. You have to get, make an appointment a week in advance with these guys. Well, but, uh, go back. Was quite the shop. Right. Go back to them. Get a complete module scan and uh, let them do what they have to do from there. I'm Ron Anani and the Car Doctor. We are back right after this. Ron Anini, the Car Doctor. Let's go over to Robert in Lansing, Michigan. Robert, welcome to the Car Doctor, sir. How can I help? Yes, I have a 1965 Mustang, uh, recently restored. Originally, it had drum brakes all the way around, but when it was restored, I had them put disc brakes on the front. Okay. Uh, after the first couple times of driving it, the brake pedal stopped uh, returning on its own. I had to do the old toe lift on it to get it to come back. I checked the brake fluid. It did uh, go down, but I didn't see any obvious signs of where it was leaking. And so I'm wondering if it's possible I could have leaked brake fluid into the booster, and that could be causing the reason the pedal's not coming up. Sure, real possible. But but let's let's talk about it a second. So the brakes worked fine for a while, 
And then, what, a couple hundred miles, I guess, Robert? I don't know how much you drove it. You noticed that you'd step on the pedal. Was it that the pedal was low or the brakes would stop, and when you took your foot off, the pedal just wouldn't come back up again? It, well, the car stops fine. It's just when I take my foot off the pedal, it doesn't come back up. Okay, and you pick it up with the tip of your foot. Correct. Yep. Okay. Um, how much fluid did you put in it? Did you have to add? Yeah. Uh, it was probably about halfway down on the reservoir. Okay, and no signs of leaks anywhere. Not that I could find. Not well, on the, not around the brake pads or anything. The right. Calipers. And and you looked at the rears. You looked at the wheel cylinders to make sure there's no leaks inside. There's not. There's nothing wet on the backing plate. Correct. Yes. If if there are no physical leaks, and there's nothing wet anywhere. It's the assumption's got to be. It's, you know, pop the master off at the booster. Is there a booster on this car, or is this a manual brake car? I'm sure it's power. They put a booster on it. Yeah. So I would I would tell you to pop the master off at the booster. You could leave the lines connected if you've got the access and just slide the master forward. And even if you have to take a mirror, if you can't get back there enough, you don't want to, you know, put too much load on the steel lines. But just pull it forward and look to see, is it wet in the back, out the back piston where the push rod goes in? If it is, then, yeah, it's, it's the master's leaking. Um, the master needs to be rebuilt or replaced, whatever you want to do. And then, you know, do you need to change the booster? You might be able to dry it out. You might be able to wipe it out. It's a it's a matter of choice, I guess. You know, how, how accessible, how hard, how easy is it to get parts for it? I'm sure it's an aftermarket conversion kit. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so then maybe it's a conversation with them. Once you see the fluid on the master... I would talk to whoever provided the kit and say, listen, if it's their master, I guess it's their master and their booster together? No, it's actually uh, two different places. Okay. Then, and I know what the answer is going to be. It's, it's, you know what, this is a hobby, Robert, and it's not really, there is a guarantee, but there isn't a guarantee we'll replace the bad part, but we won't replace the part that the part may go bad. <laughs> you know, um, which yeah, yeah. you know, which is exactly what I was talking about in the opening conversations this hour about buying the front differential for the 12 Tahoe, and you want to go someplace where you buy everything and not in pieces because you run into this exact situation. So, but let's fix the car. That's that's the name of the game. Pull the master off in front of the booster. See if it's wet in the back. If it's wet in the back, then you know why did the master go bad? Is it a is it a reman master? Is it a new master? Is it just a defective master? Get that solved then i would tell you to you know either with a small suction gun um i guess at first though i would take a mirror with a flashlight and look down inside the booster do you see any signs of fluid if you do what do you have to do to get it out if this just recently started happening you know maybe you don't have to change the booster you can just keep an eye on it the worst that i would have to say would happen depending on how much fluid got in there is if the booster started to lose um its vacuum seal in time, then it might go to more of a manual brake. You'll have less of a power steering effect. But, and again, there's a lot of ways to go here. If the manufacturer says, hey, we'll warranty the booster for going bad, then take advantage of the warranty while you can still get it. But, yeah, I would I would pull the master off and look to see if it's wet back there. And if it's not wet back there, then we got to ask the question, why, where did the fluid go? Then there's something you're yes. not seeing, um, which is the which is the next thing you've got to be a detective for. 
All right, sir. So you got a little bit of homework to do, right. and, and then, and then, um, you know, where's the flu? Why why doesn't the pedal come back? Is the pedal not coming back because of the master? Is the pedal not coming back because of the booster? And that that'll that'll be self evident, I think, when you see where the fluid went. All right, sounds good. Right. Thank you very much. You let me know what happened, and keep on driving that classic, nice car, nice car. Let's go over to Gerald in Maine. Battery issues. Gerald, welcome to the car doctor, sir. How can I help? Well, last week I tried to start the car and it was, it was a clicking sound. Okay. So I figured it was the battery. All right. What kind of what kind of car is this, Gerald? Uh, it's a Volkswagen Jetta 2005. All right. Um, so you went out and turned the key and you heard one click or multiple clicks? Lots of clicks. Lots of clicks. So it sure sounds like a dead battery. So what did you end up doing? Did you test anything? Well, we did. I had a device for charging a battery and I used that. But when I measured it, it hadn't really charged it enough. Kept losing the charge. Okay, well, 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 wait, okay. So wait a second. Were you, were you are you able to test the battery? Yes, I have, I have a device that that is either red or green to say if the battery is good or not. Okay, um, and you still have the exact same condition. Yes. Then I took this other device which we bought uh, a few years ago called a portable jump starter. Right, a, a jump pack. Right. Yeah, because a guy once used it on on. Car, and, and that up. and that doesn't do it. It still it makes the same it. sound. I, I, I was very surprised. It, it didn't say the the black lead. I thought you would go to the battery. I'd never used it before. It says no. Don't put it on the battery uh, black terminal. Put it on the on the body of the car. Right. They want well. They want you to put it on a known good ground because they're worried about you creating a spark or an arc at the battery. And battery acid, if it's gassing, depending upon it, can cause I an see. explosion. And that's so. It's a safety thing. Well, I think I found it. It's hard to find a ground on the car. Right. It's plastic. Yeah, right. But I did find a bolt, and it seemed to be connected. Right. Well, it still just clicked. So, so how about this? If you turn the headlights on in the car, are they bright or dim? Well, I, I, I'd say they were bright. See, they seemed it was daytime. Okay. Um, well, the question becomes, if you turn the headlights on and hook up the booster pack, do you notice an increase in the brightness of the lights? Well, that I didn't notice, no. Because, well, think about what you're trying to do. You're trying to put more voltage into the battery, right? Right. So if if you can again working with nothing, what can we make? What can we make out of nothing? If we hook up a jumper pack to a car and it's still the same sound, how do you know you got a good connection? Yeah. Right. That should be That's your right. that should be your first thought. Turn the headlights on. You know, does does the headlights do they increase in brightness? I see. All right. If you if you can't tell because you're doing it in the daytime, go out there at dusk tonight when it's you know between dark and light, so you can sort of still see what you're doing. You grab a flashlight. Do the headlights do they actually increase in brightness? If they increase in brightness and you get the exact same sound, then I'm going to think maybe we've got a starter issue. But at that point, I'd want to get it to a shop and let somebody diagnose it. All right. If if they don't increase in brightness, then you just have either a bad connection with the jump pack or you've got a dirty connection between the cables and the battery post, or you've got a dirty connection with the cables at the other end, where the ground leg goes to ground or where the positive meets the starter or the fuse box. Okay. All right? So how old, how old is the battery, just out of curiosity? Four years. Well, you're right on the cusp. You know, if you want to know more about it, if you want to know more about batteries testing and, and just even buying a battery, go out to autobatteries.com. Great website. We use it as a point of reference in the shop all the time. They basically tell you the ABCs of batteries, autobatteries.com. All right, kiddo? 
And if you, have any, you. if you have any more questions, you call me back next week. I'm Ron Annie, the Car Doctor. We're back right after this. Welcome back, Ron and Annie, the Car Doctor. We um, I took a really great class this week. I went back to school again. God, how could that be? That explains um, the dunce hat in the corner. Yeah, that's right. I was the good boy, but um, I was the bad boy. But um, Automotive Training Group, ATG, uh, for my mechanic brothers out there, you want to get out to atgtraining.com. Took a class with Chris Lewis, who Chris who used to work for me. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, I get to throw the spitballs at him. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a good time. It's a really great class and uh, put on by the courtesy of the folks of Bywise Auto Parts here in New Jersey. Um, but in the book, in the class we took, it's funny we're talking about transmissions today because the, uh, the class was uh, transmission in-car diagnostics, and I really liked it. It broke down the simplicity of, you know, how to, you know, is it a trans? It's too easy to say everything's a trans. You know, are there components you can repair without having to put a trans in the vehicle and so on? But there was a line out of the book that I, re- I wanted to go over and talk to everybody about. You know, we talk about how transmission fluids, you know, they last forever, quote, unquote. Transmission maintenance, automatic trans fluid, and they talk about something called fluid heat tolerance. And the article in the book uh, talks about modern fluids are highly engineered, but today's high-powered engines and small, complicated transmissions mean that everything needs to be perfect to achieve the projected life expectancy out of the drivetrain. Under normal use, most transmissions have no service interval or at least till 100,000 miles. And if the transmission never, and they italicize never, never gets very hot, that's realistic. But get that fluid hot, and its useful life is a fraction of what it was designed to be. In fact, any time, you ready for this? Sustained trans fluid temperatures go much over 175 degrees, the fluid is considered to be cooking. It's getting hot. According to Fixed Magazine in the April 2014 edition, so it's a couple of three, four, four, five years ago. Every approximately 20 degrees Fahrenheit increase in temperature cuts fluid life in half. So if you're driving a snowplow vehicle, if you're driving a vehicle that's towing, if you're driving a vehicle that's sitting in bumper-to-bumper bumper traffic on, on the West Coast Highway or the FDR or downtown Houston, and transfluid temperature goes from 175 to 195, that projected 100,000-mile transfluid is now good for 50,000 miles. If it goes up another 20,000, uh, another 20 degrees, now it's at 212. And, you know, you got to think in July, it's not hard for transfluid temp to hit 212. I've driven around in the plow truck. I've got a fluid temp gauge in it just for giggles. I'll see fluid temp in the trans in the truck and it's not even working it's it's just driving in you know june july august i'll see transfluid temp hit 200 degrees that's that's not an issue and if i'm plowing it easily gets to that even in the coldest of days you know that transfluid is now good for 25,000 miles so when we start thinking hey uh you know it's it's going to last forever yeah under perfect conditions it's what i've been telling you guys for years now okay an engineer designs this under perfect conditions but the world is far from perfect and that's the world we have to live in so you know when we're starting to talk about changing transfluid remember that 175 is normal it's perfect it's a wonderful world above 175 every 20 degrees of temperature increase we're cutting the fluid life in half for every 20 degrees so if we want to say 100,000 is good for fluid life 
we're down to 50, we're down to 25, and so on. So it really still does make sense to change trans fluid on a regular basis. I just wanted to get that out there. But other really good class, find out more about them at atgtraining.com. And if you happen to run into a class and you've got Chris Lewis, um, call me and I'll tell you all the good stories about him. But he's a really good guy. He's a really sharp cat. Um, you'll really enjoy it. Anyway, I'm Ron Anany and the Car Doctor. Let's pull over and take the pause. I'll be back right after this. Hey, welcome back. Ron Anany and the Car Doctor. Tom and I were uh, shooting the breeze there. We almost lost that, huh, Tom? How are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> almost lost that? Almost lost that. It was that. like, what clock? <laughs> what clock? Yeah, we were just, you know, we were, we were just, it's bad when Tom and I are on the air together. It's, um... We start talking about cars and radio and everything else in between. Um, it becomes an issue. I did have a um, – let me grab this piece of paper here. Got an email. I thought this was a this was timely, especially we're talking – we seem to be on differentials and transmissions this hour this week. Hey, Ron, my truck rear end started singing the other day. I checked the gear oil. It was low. Thought my differential cover was leaking. Removed the cover. What little oil was in there was like grease. It seems that – Forma gasket failed, cleaned it out, replaced old cover with new new gear oil, and she's still singing. This is from Steve. Steve, I guess um, i got to be the bearer of bad news that uh, it's time to rebuild the rear, and you're, you're likely facing at least the four main bearings, the two pinion and the two carrier bearings. Think about doing axle bearings. They probably starved for oil, too. It's a 2001 Silverado, so it's 18 years old. It's probably time to go through and do an overhaul. You know, you'll have to make a decision about doing ring and pinion. You know, what does the wear pattern look like? Did it did anything get affected because it was low on gear oil? But, you know, that's not the news here. The news here becomes that differentials, you know, the engine's got a, an oil pressure sender on it. And if the engine ever ran low on oil, unfortunately, it's a little too late at that point. But And you can check it with a dipstick, right? Um, you'll know when the engine has an issue with low on fluid. Differentials, front or rear, transfer case. And a lot of transmissions today, there's no dipstick. There's no way to check, or there's no easy way to check. Differentials, I remember the day when we used to check differential and transfer case fluid levels on every oil change. But either time doesn't permit it, or it's an unnecessary thing, or it's a little too hard to get to, or the capability, the accessibility just isn't there like it used to be, and it's not done as often. You've got to think about changing driveline fluids on a, on a regular basis, too. Every 50,000 miles is a pretty good bet as far as doing differential and transfer case. More if you're operating the vehicle in a high climate with, you know, heat and mud and, and, and dust and, and things like that. Um, you know, we did that front diff on the, by the, and I didn't talk about that at the beginning of the hour, but that front differential I did this week on the 2012 Tahoe it was a 53,000-mile truck. You know, you, you wouldn't think that a 53,000-mile, seven-year-old, you know, not driven under harsh conditions vehicle would have an issue, but it did. And the fluid came out. It was beat up and destroyed. And I said to I said to uh, Bob, the owner, I said, you know, listen, as long as we're putting a differential in it, let's go through the rest of the driveline fluids. At least let's do the differential in the transfer case. Pop the cover off the differential. Fluid looked terrible. Drained the transfer case fluid out. It's supposed to be red. It was more brown. And this is a 52,000-mile Un unused, unabused vehicle. Imagine what it looks like on some others that are worked hard. The point becomes you can't trust, uh, as, as what um, Steve said here about the Forma gasket, you can't trust Forma gasket for always working. You've got to keep an eye on fluid levels. You're headed for a trans or a differential rebuild, Steve, and uh, just watch where you go. I'm running any of the car doctor. Good mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. Yeah. 